0: All right, good morning. Good morning. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, chapter 9. We're continuing in a study of Romans, and it's For the Love of God, and we will continue to work through verse by verse, bit by bit, what God has for us in the book of Romans. As you're turning, I want to give a shout out to my mama. Today is her birthday, 78 years old. Yay, she's not here, but I still want to say happy birthday to her. My wife is here, and her birthday is tomorrow. So happy birthday to all the major women in my life here. Yeah. They say most men marry women like their mothers. I missed it by one day. Happy to be here. Romans 9. I want to just pray for us, and then we will have a good look at the text together. So let's pray together. God, thank you so much for who you are today, for us in Jesus. Thank you for your sovereign choice of your people, the way you guard us, the way you protect us, the way you keep us. I pray that we would trust you more, we would rely on you more, we would rest in Jesus more after looking at the text together today. Come to us now through your word. Amen. Amen. In Tennessee where I grew up, I grew up around horses, although I never owned one. It's because my neighbor had a boarding station, right? So all the outdoor memories of my childhood are flavored with the delightful sights and the unpleasant smells of horses. And I was always fascinated with them because they're so big, they're powerful, they're beautiful, they're majestic, great creatures. And I was also fascinated because where I lived, dogs had no leash law, cats could go wherever, but these majestic horses were fenced in. And I always thought that was curious as a young man. So much so that one day I began to reckon, in Tennessee we reckon a lot, and one day I turned to my cousin when I was a teenager and I said, I reckon I could hop that fence and ride that horse bareback, because if he's constrained by this fence, how wild can he be? My cousin doubted me, so the game was on. Later that night, after 2 a.m., we snuck out of the house, something a teenager should never do. We snuck out and went to the horse field, and I snuck up on this horse, and I got beside him. And if you don't know horses, they're actually pretty tall. Too tall for me to get up on, right? Without a saddle. So I backed up, I eyed my steed, and then with all the blazing speed of my youth, I took a big run at it, and I vaulted landing up on the horse, (laughs) and for a moment, time stood still, and then he looked back at me, and he did the horse snort, and then bam, it took off, everything turned upside down, if you've ever been on a galloping horse, it's something else, it's no joke, so we were going, he bucked, and I went up to the Running, I was scared to death, not in for this, and then I noticed he was headed right for the fence. He's either going jump it or crash it, and I was up for neither of those things. So I bailed. Much to the mockery of my cousin who was watching saying, Why don't you stay on you big chicken? But it turned out that horse was a lot more wild than I ever imagined. We see this same concept. In the writings of C.S. Lewis, you may have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the very final chapter. We get this note from the author. He says, amid all the rejoicing, Aslan himself, he quietly slipped away. And when the kings and queens noticed that he wasn't there, they said nothing about it, for Mr. Beaver had warned them. He'll be coming, and he'll be going, the beaver had said. One day you'll see him, and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, and of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only he mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. He's not like a tame lion. In my neighbor's wild retired racehorse, or Lewis's wandering Lion, we see the same thing, unconstrained freedom. And when we come to the text today to know God, to understand Him more, we see a very similar image of God putting Himself forward as unconstrained, free God. Doesn't play by our rules, doesn't build to our specs. And frankly, that's a little scary, isn't it? We. Don't really like it when God runs the world his way. I'd much prefer him to run the world my way. Be a little bit more constrained in the box I would like to put it in. We all think this way. Here's a little exercise. Just think about this past week. Think back to how your week went this week. And ask yourself, if you were God, what would you have changed? You might start with March Madness in the brackets. (laughs) But more seriously, what would you do different if you were God? How about the civil war in Ethiopia that's been going on for a year? I think I'd peace that out if I were God, right? Maybe you think a little less globally. How about the 35th your three-year-old has thrown this week? I'd like to change that. If I were God, surely, surely I could do better than that. Maybe it's the negative tests you got for the virus, yet it still puts you out for a week. Not COVID, but it's something. Maybe it's gas prices. Surely, if I were God, I would handle inflation. Any number of things that we look at God and we're like, I don't know about that. I think I might could do The fact of the matter is, we all wish that God sometimes would just run the world differently. You may do this several times a day. And on the news, it's Ukraine. It's not going the right way. Surely that could be run differently, you might think. It's the original attack of Satan on Adam and Eve, and the devil will still use these tactics today, to tempt you to think, eh, hey, maybe God's just not running things in the best way possible. In today's text, in Romans 9, the is going to be salvation. The topic's going to be election. And we see God ruling in a wild, unconstrained way, the way he chooses to rule. He chooses to save some. But this idea can be broadened out to all of life can't it is god worthy to be trusted to rule in his free wild unconstrained way sometimes in a way that i would not rule if you have those questions like i have these questions this text will be for you so let's jump on in here in romans 9. now this sermon actually began last week as Sean preached the previous text in Romans 9. This chapter portion of the chapter is very much connected to the last portion. So last time, Sean covered 9, 6 through 13. Now, to sum it up, okay, in that section, we saw that God's promises to save his people will not fail. These saving promises won't fail Because they depend on God alone. God elects who he'll save apart from human works. He illustrated that by saying, remember Jacob and Esau. I chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau. And when he says this, Paul is not going to stop in today's text and imagine two objections to his line of thinking. All right? Very rarely in Scripture, do we get this peek into what the author supposes you might be thinking? And then he actually answers the questions that he thinks you're gonna ask. So it's a very unique text. I'm glad we have it, it helps me a lot. What I'm gonna do is just look at these two objections together today and see how Paul responds to them, okay? Beginning in verse 14, here's the first objection. First objection, when it comes to salvation, God's not playing fair. When it comes to salvation, God is not playing fair. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then after hearing that God chooses who he's going to save? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Here's what he's saying. If God isn't basing his saving choice on our works... How in the world is that fair? The objection goes, the only just way for God to choose who he saves and who he doesn't is to judge us on moral merit. That's the only fair way to do it, right? To judge us on our moral merit. Who loves Jesus the most? How would you tell that? Who cries the most during the song? I don't know. Who visits the most widows, maybe? who adopts the most kids, who interacts with the most refugees, who gives the most to stop sex trafficking. I, I don't know, but there should be some way to balance this to see who the best people are, and then God should save them. Otherwise, it's an injustice. That's the objection. Furthermore, if you're being unjust in salvation, How can I trust you in the rest of life? See how he brought that out there, right? That's the objection to what Paul is saying. Now, he's going to answer this objection, but first, I want to consider two things that he doesn't say, all right? Because when you're talking to someone, you often tell a lot about them by what they don't say, right? There's two things he could have said here, but he didn't. Now, we'll look at those really quickly. First, when you read this text, Here's something he doesn't say. Remember remember the objection. If you're choosing people before they're born, that's not fair. They haven't even had a chance to accept Jesus or reject Jesus yet. It's unjust. It's not fair. You have to base your choice on something, God, or it's not fair at all. But how might he answer this? Well, here's how he doesn't answer it. It's how it was answered when I asked this question many years ago as a teenager. You're finding out way too much about Teeny Trap today. (laughs) They won't all be about my teenagers, but this one is because I asked the same question when I sat down with my home church pastor. My friend Jason is there, my friend Darren is there, and it's me with long, flowing black hair, sitting with my pastor, and I said, how can this be? I turned to Romans 9. I read this chapter out and said, are you telling me that God chooses us before we're born? How is that fair? And this is what he said to me. He said, well, picture a mountain. And you're walking down a mountain on a winding path. And as you're walking down this winding path, you come to Forks in the Road choices that you have to make in life some of your choices are going to be good some of your choices are going to be bad but you're making all of these choices and you come to a point where you can either choose to follow jesus or you don't follow jesus right that's a choice and then he said now imagine god above the mountain because god is above time and he can see way back before time when he elects you and before he chooses you for salvation He looks all the way forward to you on the mountain, making the choice to follow Jesus. And so, because he has knowledge of your future free choices, God then elects to save you. So, his election is actually based on what he knows you're going to do. Therefore, it is just. My pastor taught me that. Paul does not say that. That's not how he chooses to describe things. Because it's false. Paul says, after he gives the answer in verse 16, you can look for yourself. He says, it depends not on human will, future choice, or exertion. So whatever we say about God's election, it does not depend on our choice. So let's abandon that answer. One more thing he didn't say here. But it kind of did implicitly. Let's read the verse again. You see the phrase he says in verse 14? By no means! That's worded emphatically. So his his kind of answer to the first objection is, Come on! Come on! Why does he do that? Why is he emphatic? Aren't you forgetting something? Paul is saying. I think he's trying to say that we totally misunderstand fairness and justice when it comes to salvation here's an example imagine with me for a moment that you're in a courtroom and it's filled with some of the world's worst ever war criminals leaders who have committed atrocity And you're there, and they're going to be judged by the family and friends of the people they have committed crimes against. Got it in your head? So you see, Chairman Mao there from China. In the 50s, he was responsible for committing the killings of almost 2 million of his people in the 50s. So he's found guilty in this trial you're watching. Then up walks Saddam Hussein. He committed genocide against his own people, the Kurds, for years. Tried to wipe them off the planet. Saddam is found guilty in this trial. And then comes Mussolini. Maybe you don't know Mussolini. He was the prime minister of Italy in World War II. He's the founding father of the fascist party. He is known for killing infants in concentration camps. He's known for using poison gas and killing thousands wrongly. He's made an image of God, but this guy is guilty of war crimes. So you see him there, and you're thinking, he's going to be guilty. And then you see, walking up, a little bent-over Italian man. He's walking slowly, and he has the verdict. And this guy says, Mussolini, you know what you did, but we are going to show you mercy so that all the world will celebrate the kindness of the Italian people who chose to forgive you. And as he says that, the place erupts. Half the people say, no, 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 You can't let them off the hook like that. The other half of the people say, "Ah, what kind of kindness is this? I've never seen such mercy. But no one in the room objects and says, "Eh, what about Saddam? Nobody says that because Mussolini receives grace. Saddam receives justice. Nobody receives injustice. What Paul is saying here when he says, by no means, he's saying your objection forgets the depths of guilt that humans have before God. When God decides to save even one of us, The cry shouldn't be, you must save us all. No, the cry should be, what kind of kindness is this for you to even save some? Any cries of injustice should be, it's unjust that all are not condemned. And in fact, that's one of the beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. God would be unjust. If he lets sinners off the hook. But he doesn't. Instead, he pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ. On behalf of sinners. That's right. Sinners like you. Sinners like me. Jesus' death satisfies this righteous wrath and anger of God against sin. It shows God to be righteous. Or, the other word for righteous is just. Same thing in the Greek. He punishes sin. Evil is dealt with as it should be. If we ever think God is being unjust, we should just look first to Jesus. That's where he satisfies the demands of justice in this world. And we don't look just to Jesus, but we also run to Jesus to know this God who is so wild and unconstrained in his sovereign rule. Now, Paul doesn't explain all that here because he's already said it in chapter 3, right? But it's implied. But let's look now back to the objection. The objection is, hey, in salvation, God's not playing fair. I understand what you said about election, and I'm saying it's not fair. That's the objection. Paul's going to answer it now in a two-part answer. The first part of the answer is, remember Moses and God. That's his first part of the answer. I'm going to explain it to you, but look at it first in verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem like he's answering the question at all, does it? But he is. He's answering it the way he wants to answer it, by referring us back to who God is in the Old Testament, okay? So we gotta go back in our Bible storylines to Exodus 33, verse 19. That's the verse you see quoted there in verse 15 in Romans 9, all right? In that story, Moses has just come down from the mountain. And what did he see? He saw his people having a praise and worship time. They were singing, they were dancing, all centered around a metal cow. Ah, wretched idolatry. What happens? 3,000 of them are put to death for the idolatry, and Moses goes to God to intercede. Stop, be merciful. Save some of us. And he does. God does this. Then Moses... Followed up. It's going pretty good. He's saving some of us. I'm going to ask for more. Moses says, show me more of who you are. I want to see your glory. I want to drink you in, God. And then God answers with the verse that's being quoted here in verse 15. God says, oh, you want to see my goodness, my glory? Here it is. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord that comes right before this verse he's quoting. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Remember that name free. It's going to come up again. God says to Moses, you want to see my glory? I'm going to proclaim who I am. I'll proclaim my character, my name, and then he says this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's who I am. You want to know my glory? That's the essence of it. I am unconstrained. I am free. I am ruling. That's at the very heart of who I am. If you really want to know my majesty? Get to know my wildness. I have mercy on whom I will. And I'll choose who I want to show compassion to myself. Now that's the first part of Paul's answer. We're just going to put a pin in that and look at the second part, and come back and tie it up, okay? Let's look at the second part of his answer. His first part was, remember God and Moses. His second answer here is this. Don't forget the objection. The objection to what Paul's teaching is, God's not playing fair in salvation. That's an objection. Here's the second part of his answer. Okay, remember how God dealt with Pharaoh. All right? For well, the scripture, now he's going back to Exodus 9, 16, a different story in Exodus. And there God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name, oh, hear that name again? My name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens Whomever he wills. Let's unpack the second part of the answer here. Paul is pushing you back to the Old Testament to learn who God is, okay? In that story, God is dealing with the leader of Egypt named Pharaoh. You know the story. He's captured, he's enslaved God's people. And God has gone to him through Moses saying, let my people go. And throughout the story, we see Pharaoh's, heart growing cold to God. And then Moses makes it clear in that story that ultimately God is the one doing the hardening. Now let's be clear, when God hardened the heart, it's not as if he hardened the heart that's desperately seeking him. The natural bent of a human heart is to rebel because of the brokenness and the fall. So when God hardened the heart, he's removing his grace from him. But God is the one doing it, he's doing the hardening and Pharaoh digs his heels in and he says, I'm not letting your people go. So through the digging of the heels, God is actually raising up Pharaoh for judgment. Here's how this works. Anyone ever in history who hears of the plague of the flies or the frogs, the bloody water, death of the firstborn, they're all going to remember how God poured out his wrath against sin. They're all going to see God in his holiness punishing what deserves to be punished. They will know the power of God against evil. This is a righteous thing to do because it reveals this beautiful Holy, terrifying part of who God is, the part of His name. God is ruling in a free and holy way. And that will be proclaimed to all the earth. Now, let's tie it up. Paul's given two parts of the answer. I know it's confusing. This is a hard section of the Bible, but we can get it. The objection raised here is God does not play fair in salvation. He doesn't choose based on decisions, and that's what he should be basing his choice of us on, our decisions. Maybe our affections, our good works. But Paul is answering and saying, the most fair or just thing God could ever do is to show you his true self. By electing to say not based on human works, Human choice, he reveals the beauty of his ruling freedom. He's unconstrained in salvation, that's beautiful. He's free, free to show mercy to Moses, free to harden Pharaoh. God does what he wills. He's not a tame lion. And that is beautiful. This week, some of our students went on a trip to a camp, a weekend camp, and they sent a picture back of a sunrise or sunset. It's beautiful. We all love sunrises because the light hits the particles in different ways, and you can see oranges and reds. You know what else I like about a sunrise? I like the fact that it's only a little bit. During the day, right? You don't see the sunrise all day long. And if I sleep too late, I don't get to see it. It's not waiting on me, is it? The fact is, we are constrained when we try to look at the sun. We can't make it stop because the world is spinning, right? We're constrained. We're stuck in there and it's down. I have to wait till the next morning to see it come. But all the while... The sun is shining freely, beautifully. It is us who are restricted and are constrained. Like a wild buffalo roaming across the plains, there is beauty in this unconstrained freedom. And that's what God is showing off. A healthy portion of God's glory is bound up in his freedom. That's how Paul answers the objection that God is not playing fair. Oh, yes, he is. He's showing you the most beautiful thing in the world. It would not be just to hold that from you. The most fair thing you can do is to show it off. That's God's and Paul's answer here to the first objection. But there's another objection here. You want to get to that? Really quick objection, too. When people hear about God, the doctrine of election, God choosing who he's going to save before time, even before you're born. There's another objection that comes up and it's attached to the last verse we just read about Pharaoh. See if you can pick it up. Verse 18 in chapter 9 of Romans reads this way. I'll read the the back part of 18. And God hardens whomever God wills. 19 is the objection. So you're going to say to me then, your objection is going to be, why does God still find fault? So who could resist his will then? How can he even find fault with anybody? That's the objection. Why does God rule the world this way? doesn't make sense to me. If he's hardening people's hearts, how can he hold them guilty? Doesn't that alleviate human responsibility? Who can resist God's will to be hard? That's the objection. Once again, we're given a two-part response. Paul is like that. He likes to be nuanced. Let's see what his first uh, objection is. People say, how could God rule the world this way? Verse 20, Paul says, Hold on here. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, Paul has changed his tone here because he's hearing what he equates to back talk, right? This isn't just an innocent philosophical question. There's some rebellion here. That's why he says, oh man. To remind people who they are in this situation here. Today we have the wonderful joy of an addition to our stage. Okay. <laughs> you might know that in old churches and some churches that are still modern, especially if you go to Europe, you'll see this. Oftentimes in churches they will have raised pulpits. You know why they did that? Wasn't well, pastor worship. They wanted to raise up the word of God and the reverence for God Himself. So that as we listened to sermons and gave them, we would never forget our place in the order of things. God's up here. We're down here, and so Paul's first objection when we ask, why in the world is God, why is he run things like that? His first objection is, wait a minute, remember your spot. As I was studying for this sermon, I was reading this verse, and it, it hit me that I would have loved to have talked about this verse with an old neighbor of mine. Listen to what he says there. He said. Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Imagine a person who makes clay vessels, a potter. He's saying, will the pot say to the molder, why have you made me like this? So I was imagining talking with my old neighbor in downtown Raleigh. For years I lived in the south part of downtown Raleigh. One of the first people I met when I moved there was a little old lady named Miss Ruth. By the time I got into life, she was an old lady, but she was still full of spunk and full of soul. Man, you really liked her, cuz. Here's one reason I liked her. I liked her for a lot of reasons, but here's one reason. She was great at something I'm terrible at, and that is the delicate art of call and response conversation. All right, here's what she could do. As I would tell a story, she would very naturally, throughout my story, at the perfect time, she would always say, uh-huh, all right, yep, come on, yep, no, you didn't. She would say that throughout the whole story, and there wasn't anything that wasn't on pitch. She was a natural at it. And so for some reason, as I'm studying this. I I'm imagine myself talking to my old, old neighbor about this because we used to talk over the fence and I would just talk, tell stories with her and I can imagine me saying, hey, Miss Ruth, what do you think if the clay pot were to say to its potter, why did you make me like this? I just know she would say something like, oh, clay don't, clay don't say, no, clay don't say. She would say something perfect like that that would illustrate the absolute absurdity of creation talking back to creator. And that's what Paul is trying to do here as he leads us here. That's his first objection. Keep reading, verse 21. He's saying, do we really know enough as finite beings to critique how God uses his kingly rights? Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other one for dishonorable use? Obvious answer yes. The potter does have those rights. Now let's stop and clarify the metaphors. So a lot of us don't like metaphors. We like it clean, clear. God is seen as a potter, he's making clay vessels. The clay vessels are the people. He's creating people. Some, like Moses and Jacob, are prepared for honorable use. That means salvation. He's going to save some. But some, like Esau and Pharaoh, are made for dishonorable use. That means eternal destruction. Paul turns the issue once more to God's kingly freedom. As creator, a potter has the freedom to make pots for different purposes. Likewise, God has created freedom to rule sovereignly over salvation. So Paul's first response here is very, very pastoral. He's saying, just be careful with this type of questioning. Remember, you don't have the whole picture. Okay, if you're in your life and you're asking the question, and Why is God running a world like this? Remember, He has the whole eternal picture. You do not. He has the creator's right and freedom to rule this way. Maybe you have all kinds of questions about your body image. Man, why do I have to look like this? Why is my waistline look like this? Other people look at me differently. God, why didn't you make me differently? You don't have the whole picture. Right? He has the right to create. My relationships mess up. My mother in law. My own kids, they don't relate to me the right way. You don't have the whole picture. All right? God is ruling well. You don't have an infinite view that's Paul's first part of his answer but he doesn't stop there he graciously uses this objection to make another point here he's going to tell us why God rules in this manner on a big scale he's not going to answer all your questions but he's going to provide an umbrella under which all your questions can sit okay if the question is why in the world is God ruling this way here is his umbrella answer here remember the objection why does God rule this way Here's the second part of Paul's answer, and it's found in 22 of your text, verse 22. I'll read it. Paul said, Well, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order. To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, verse 22 explains more clearly the situation of Pharaoh and all who reject God. Everybody in your life is rejecting God. He's explaining a little more fully. Look what God desires to show as he deals with Pharaoh. That's his motivation here. He wants to show two things. You see it in the text? One, his holy wrath. Two, his free kingly power. Wrath and power. That's what God is desiring to show. He's going to show this part of his character off as he acts against sin. His righteousness against evil will be on display. But look at verse 23. Because all this has a purpose. God's wrath, and everybody's seen it, isn't really the ultimate thing he wants to show off. I read one writer this week that put it this way. He said, against the backdrop of his wrath, the immeasurable riches and preciousness of his mercy is emblazoned upon the consciousness of the vessels of mercy he prepared beforehand. What does that mean? Saved people, people who love Jesus, they cannot have robust worship unless they see their salvation in light of the fate of the damned. We need a robust picture of God to understand fully who he is. God wants to show you his wild self. Consider one of the artist Rembrandt's largest and probably most famous painting. Now I'm no art expert, but I do know about this one painting a little bit. I don't know how good you can see that on the screen. But Rembrandt painted this painting. And long afterwards, people gave his most famous painting a nickname. You know what that was? It's called the Night's Watch. They called it that because they thought he was painting a nocturnal scene, but he wasn't painting nighttime at all. All Rembrandt was doing was pointing out the contrast. He he colored everybody in the background with dark grays and blacks, so that the three figures at the front—the woman on the left, the guy with the funny hat—he wanted them to simply contrast as central figures. And was his sole purpose? Now, when you consider God's election and salvation, you likewise might feel God is painting a dark scene. But remember, he's purposely highlighting his glorious mercy. We wouldn't understand what salvation means If we did not see some people perishing, that's what God wants us to see. And you'll see this same kind of contrast coming up at Easter. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about his death. Note the graves and the shadows as Jesus hangs on the cross, condemned. It's a bleak picture. Three of the four gospel writers describe a darkness that swept across the land for three hours. Luke simply says, the sunshine just failed. Sin had to be punished. As in Rembrandt's painting, it wasn't nighttime at all. God was contrasting. Brutal death of Jesus, where he had to bear all of the sin of God's people on himself. You look at the cross, you can ask the question, was it fair that the perfect priest had to be an innocent sacrifice for God to effect salvation? You can ask that question, but perhaps the best answer is that the darkness of the cross best reveals God's justice. All throughout Romans, the argument for people has been God cannot pass over sin. He just can't let sin be. He's got to punish it. But he also couldn't let his people perish and all his people are full of sin. So what does he do? He weds those together. His mercy and his justice, just like a Rembrandt painting. So that the mercy of God is highlighted in the death of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful, but it's wild. Not everybody gets saved. But it's beautiful. And it's meant to be known. meant to be adored. It's meant to be a little scary. Because we're not God. Now contrast that with the resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead long in the resurrection. We see validation. We see new creation. We see victory. This good news is contrasted with the death of Jesus. Paul does it in Romans 6. Look at Romans 6. We've already talked about this in our series, but not will say it again. Romans 6, verse 4, we read, We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the Lord of the Father, we might too walk in the newness of life. See that contrast? Death and life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that doesn't sound so great. I don't know if I want to be united in a death like his. If that has happened, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If he paid for our sins, we will surely live because we're united to Christ. The flavor of this life is all the sweeter because of the bitter-tasting preceding death. So to the question of why does God rule the world this way? Paul's answer is, God, in electing who he will save, best shows off God's magnificence. The best way to show off his own magnificence through this beautiful but scary, sobering contrast between death and life. Mercy in light of his holy wrath. The best way we can delight in the fullness of the magnificence of God. Now let's bring this back to the questions we asked at the beginning. Is it safe for me to trust an unconstrained Wild God like that? A God is so free in electing who he will save. Seems scary. Let's Start with salvation because that's where the text is. When it comes to salvation, we really want to trust a God like that who chooses people before they were even born. Well, listen to what uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul said many years ago. I read it this read. I pass it on you. Sproul said, well, you ask me Why does God give that grace to me and not to somebody else? If I begin to give an answer that suggests it was something good in me that he perceived, I would no longer be talking about grace. I'd be talking about some good thing that I did that was the basis for God to elect me. But I don't have anything like that to offer. Here's what he's getting at. We need to make this connection. If God's election is not based on my works, then my perseverance is not based on my works. And that's good news. If I'm going to get from Southeast Raleigh High School today to heaven in the future, it better not be based on my choice, my volition, my works. Oh, it's performance based, all right, but on the performance of Jesus. Only what he did can capture up all of the justice and mercy of God. So it's good news. Trust me that God is not basing his choice of you on something you did. It's good news. He's worthy to be trusted. Isaac Watts summed it up in a beautiful hymn years ago when he wrote... Before he gave the mountains birth or laid foundations for the earth, thus did eternal love begin to raise us up from death and sin. Our characters were then decreed, blameless in love, a holy seed, a new regenerated grace to the praise and glory of his grace. When you see our unconstrained, wild God in salvation, rest well. He's good. He can be trusted. For if God's salvation of you is anchored deep in his purposes, it will not be cut off. The only other choice is to anchor it in something of your own righteousness. And that will fail. God never will. So let's trust this wild God in our salvation. But what about all of life? Let's broaden the question out. Is it safe to put my hope in a wild, unconstrained God in all of my life? What if my child's in the hospital? It doesn't seem right to me. What kind of ruling is this? My career plan are now off course. It doesn't seem right to me. Financially, the bottom just dropped out. I don't know if I can trust God or not. Well, this week as I was preparing the sermon, I listened, I read, tried to study up one person pointed me to 2 Corinthians 4.8. I thought it was helpful. 2 Corinthians 4.8 says this. This is Paul talking about himself so, in life. Right? Paul knew pain. So he said, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Here's the key. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, yeah, but not forsaken. I don't know about your family. My family's had some pain in the last couple weeks, and things I wouldn't have wanted to go through. I bet you have, too. And I'm perplexed as to why God would rule that way. But I'm not in despair. Why? Because I know everything is in God's hands to turn bad to good. One preacher said it like this. Imagine a man coming across heartache, and it's so bad, he puts one hand to his face. But he raises his other hand up. That's what God wants us. We are to feel the pain in this life, but we are not to despair. Whether my life be under God's rule, then who else's chance? Is that what you want? Chance is not guaranteed to turn things 5,000 years from now to good. God has said he will do that. No trust in yourself, your own rule? Uh, A little too finite for that. Who's the other ruler in the Bible? Satan? Is he the one you're going to trust to rule? No, we must trust in the perplexing, wild rule of God he has the power to turn evil to good. God has the power to ordain suffering. He has the power to make it right, to wipe every tear, to right every wrong, to make all things new. I was looking listening to a talk by David Platt this week. And he took me in his talk to Ephesians 3. And this is what God says in Ephesians 3. Listen to what he said. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we want. Ask or think. You know what that means? I can't even imagine a solution that begins to stack up to God's solution. His power. That's why it's so perplexing to me. I can't even think to ask the right thing of God because I'm finite and he is infinite. Let's trust in his capability, his ability. Platt said, God ordains sorrowful tragedy in this life to set the stage for surprising triumph in this life or the next. Don't know when. God's taking the long view here. I tend not to. I tend to think about my today. This hurts today. God's taking the long view. So if you ask me, how can I draw near to a free, unconstrained God to rule the world? I'll answer with a humble, broken, pain-stained, hopeful, rejoicing, victorious. Yes! Yes! Yes, let's draw near and trust this God. He is our only hope. He's the only one worthy of our trust. We need to heed the call of this wild God and trust him for our salvation today and in all the rest of our lives. Let's pray together. God, we do pray. As we dare ponder the mysteries of your deep knowledge and try to make sense of who you are, God, we pray that you come in this moment. Shepherd us. Jesus is the good shepherd. Help us to look at the cross now, at the coming of Jesus in just a short while and help us to rejoice. Help us to hold on when we're perplexed. God, I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I don't understand suffering. I don't understand all of who you are in salvation. And yet, I want not very much to be driven to despair. And I pray that for all of us here. When things get tough, when trials come, drive us not to despair. Instead, give us hope in the finished work of Jesus and his returning. I pray this.